You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Well, hello there. This is your Tables on Fire episode number 44. Okay, with me tonight, we have not one, not two, but three very special guests. We have Rob Kramer. Hi there. John Dubois. Hello. And Mitchell Shipman. Hey. Three game designers for three games currently on a single Kickstarter campaign. This is the Button Shy Wallet series, quarter one, 2017. It's the whole bundle. So we're excited to be talking to all three of you. So all three of you, welcome to your tables on fire. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some introductions. And uh, we're just going to go alphabetically. So, John, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself. Uh, my name is John Dubois, a speech pathologist from Michigan. And I am the designer of the two-player game, Avignon, A Clash of Popes, and uh, now the uh, Avignon Pilgrimage expansion. All right. Very good. Mitchell, go ahead. Hi, I'm uh, Mitchell Shipman. Um, I'm a business intelligence developer uh, down in Florida, and I'm the designer of Find Your Seats, um, which is a little three to four player drafting game about seating people at a dinner table. All right, perfect. And Rob, go ahead. Hi, I'm Rob Kramer. I'm Jeff Beck's best friend. That's and true. And <laughs> I'm, I'm from Provo, Utah, and I designed Turbo Drift a two-to-four-player real space racing game that plays in 30 minutes. All right. Now, uh, what I find interesting about all your introductions is none of you said, hey, I'm a full-time game designer. You know, we had uh, speech therapists and, and Rob, you, you work in sewage or something? I don't re- remember exactly. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely something close to that. <laughs> so, so, you know, tell me what, what is a, a speech therapist uh, or a business analyst or a, a garbage worker. What, what, what are you guys doing designing games? All right, so this is John, and I'm the speech guy, so I'm going to jump in. Uh, so um, I've been, uh, ever since I've been involved in the gaming hobby, you know, I've been designing and, and working on stuff creatively. When I played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons, I was writing adventures that were organized play campaigns, and that's just kind of how how I let loose on the weekend is... Uh, I design games because that's how I can get my creative my creative thing going, and uh, it's even something that I've put into my work. Um, I use a lot of games in speech therapy sessions, and like a lot of speech therapists will bring in headbands or apples to apples, and I try to mix it up a bit by bringing in uh, games more familiar to the hobby community, like uh, Dixit, and um, even like Get Bit or uh, No Thanks to teach speech concepts and language concepts to kids. So it's just hmm. kind of a natural integration with my work. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, this is Mitchell. No, no real integration with my work. Um, I've played games ever, ever since I can remember. Basically, I think I got a Super Nintendo when I was like five or six, uh, and it was a it was a downward spiral from there. Um, eventually, I stopped <laughs> uh, playing video games as much and got into more analog gaming uh, in college. And kind of my addiction grew, and eventually. As with anything that I spend most of my waking hours that are not work or school related, um, it kind of just infected my mind, and I got to the point where it's like, oh, you know, this would be fun to try to do myself, and just kind of went from there. 
And my path, it started with finding hobby games a few years ago. And when I told other people about these brand new board games that are super cool and unlike anything you've ever played before, a lot of the times I would get the question, are you going to invent your own game? And it was a weird question because I never thought that that would be something I would do. It was just a new medium that I I discovered and I was having fun playing games. But just in response to a contest that Greater Than Games made... I think it was two years ago now, um, for Dexterity Games, it, I decided to design a game in, in a response to hopefully win a contest. And uh, that's basically all my game designs have been, uh, just responses to contests. And so that is that is why I design. Rob, is there some childhood drama that, that <laughs> caused you to be obsessed with, with contests? I mean, if I was a Batman villain, I would probably be, like, the contest ruiner or something <laughs> like that. I would be... That would be my origin story, for sure. Okay, I, I can appreciate that. Hmm. Well, here we are in January, looking back in 2016. So, I guess a question for the panel here. What is the single most memorable gaming experience that you had last year? Um, so last year I went to SaltCon. That's the gaming convention that's near Salt Lake City. And I've gone there for the past three years. I think I missed one year because of, uh, I went to BGGCon. But there I wasn't demoing any games. I wasn't, uh, working for any publishers or anything like that. I was just there to play games and hang out with some friends that I've made. And so we sat down and played a game, the Sons of Anarchy game. Um, how many of you guys have played that one? I have not played it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, same here. It is dirt cheap on Amazon right now. And it is. <laughs> it has so many different pieces in it of these bikers and their thugs that go and shake down places for guns and money and drugs and, and all this kind of stuff, which is almost opposite of any other game that I've played before that. But the fact that I was playing with people that I knew and it was a good game to boot just kind of really stuck with me that that games are special and that there is a lot of stuff that goes into making a game experience good, both from a design perspective and just the people that you're hanging around with. So most memorable experience for me, I'm going to cheat because it's multiple experiences, but uh, <laughs> my group and I finally ran through Pandemic Legacy. Mm-hmm. It took us all year, but it was it was definitely interesting. <laughs> I might get lambasted for this, but Pandemic is, is a in my opinion, a good gateway game. It's not a game that I would see myself sitting down every week to, to play, you know, 15 in a row or 12 in a row. I can't remember how many. It was 12. We lost a couple of times, so it was closer to 15. Um, <laughs> but I... I've become somewhat infatuated uh, with the idea of the legacy game. I know it's kind of controversial right now, being mm-hmm. ripping up cards and putting stickers on stuff. <laughs> right, sacrilege, right? But it was a it was a very different experience, and we went in full bore, and um, we all we all had a good time. So that was probably for me that was probably my most memorable 2016 gaming experience. Good. Yeah, I, I, Pandemic Legacy was a good one for me too. We're not done yet, but we uh, we have also played 15 games, but we're not done. Um, we we may have opened box eight around June somewhere, which is the box you open when you've lost ah. four games in a row. <laughs> that's a that's a dangerous one. 
My uh, my most memorable experience for the last year is that uh, I have a two-year-old daughter who's almost three, and last year was the first time that she was really able to start playing games and understand games, you know, and she's still playing like the little Haba games or go away monster by game, right? But at our New Year's party this past year, she got her game out and she pulled it out with some friends of ours. And my daughter, for the first time, taught somebody else how to play a game at two and a half years old. Wow. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty impressive. Now you're not steering her toward Candyland or anything, right? We have a copy of Candyland. She has she has been introduced to Candyland. She does not choose Candyland as a game that she wants to play right now. She really likes Spot It. We kind of modified Spot It to be turn based instead of speed based, and she likes the picture the picture matching, and so that's the one she pulls out when she wants to play a game right now. Right. Well, that's that's pretty good. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take now some time and talk about your games. Let's start with Find Your Seats, Mitchell. Why don't you take a, you know a little more time than just your introduction and tell us what is Find Your Seats? So, Find Your Seats is a quick three to four player uh, drafting game themed around seating guests at, guests at a dinner party. So, effectively, there's 18 cards in all the all the wallet games. Um, a little bit more with the stretch goals now. But you'll get a hand of four cards, uh, draft, so pick one pass, left, right, left, over three rounds, and seat your guests in one of three spots at a kind of abstract dinner table. And the, uh, the goal is to have your guests have something to talk about, and effectively you are able to affect the players sitting to the left and right of you uh, based on those conversations, because there's effectively six connections between each character four between the three that you control, and then there's two outgoing to your left and right neighbors, right and left character, respectively. So uh, somebody described it as co-op competitive, which I don't know if I necessarily agree with. I think it's very much competitive, um, but there is that aspect <laughs> of trying to, to optimally seat such that your left and right neighbors will give you the most points. Each character has a little ability as well, so you can try to maximize that way. So from that description, it sounds a little bit like Sushi Go and Between Two Cities got together and had a baby. Is that a fair comparison? Uh, that's possible. I have not played Between Two Cities. Um, that's on my list uh, to, to play. I would say it's it's kind of like Sushi Go. I don't want to make a grand claim, but I've, uh, Seven Wonders is my drafting game of choice, so I'm sure that was kicking around in my head while I was going through the design process. So it's, I'd say it's a, it's a Sushi Go with more direct interaction. Right. If that, if that matches between two cities yeah, a little bit a little bit okay uh rob right now why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit more about turbo drift happy to so turbo drift is a real space racing game meaning that any surface that you play on whether it's your table or airplane tray although i don't think it'll fit on an airplane tray um becomes the board Have tried? uh i haven't yet i mean i could probably do some like five minute games on, on an airplane tray. I, I think that's some serious playtesting you need to do. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, any, any surface that you play on becomes the course that your cars are going to drive through. Um, there are obstacles that scatter throughout the course between the racers and the finish line. And then there are six path cards that are, are in a two by three grid. And on your turn, you're either going to pick one, two, or three cards, and that depends on how fast you want to go. 
Uh, the more cards you pick, the more dangerous it is, and the more likely that you might not go in the direction that you want to go in. So with drifting, most of the skill involved is getting close to barriers, but without touching them. And so on these barrier cards that are scattered on the table, there are boost icons. And if you overlap those icons with the path cards that you picked that turn, then you get a free movement, basically making your your car go a little bit faster, just because you were able to drift and avoid a barrier in a crash. Every turn, players are moving. Once per game, you can pick up all six path cards instead of just one, two, or three and push your luck to see how far you can go and how fast. It's actually based on another game that I really enjoy called Techno Witches, where it has witches riding around on vacuums throughout (laughs) uh, these castles trying to catch a black cat. And so I wanted to see if I could boil it down and turn it into something that was 18 cards and, and change it. And Turbo Drift is the result of that experiment. You have a very specific setting of 1970s Japanese mountain passes. So why, why that specific setting? Why not just uh, you know any random car race? So the history of drifting um, was that it was born in the mountain passes of Japan. I've been watching some really old videos of people drifting, showing drifting off to the world for the first time, and they aren't driving these slick and shiny and fancy cars that are aerodynamic. They're driving these kind of beaters or just regular sedans that have small tires and and they're squealing around these corners, and I just thought that was really, really interesting to take a setting that isn't really done in games you can have lots of people crowded around a nascar track or a formula one track but this these were races that were happening on roads that everyday people drive down and so i thought that was a really neat opportunity to kind of set it in in everyday life rather than uh formal race as it goes on Mm -hmm. all right well uh john tell us more about avignon pilgrimage Avignon Pilgrimage is a standalone expansion to Avignon and Clash of Popes, which was on Kickstarter last year and uh, is now actually sold out, so it's the only way to get the base game is also through this Kickstarter right now. And in Avignon, you are one of two players who is trying to become Pope. Um, It's based on the Avignon Papacy, or actually the uh, Western Schism of the 14th century, And the way you become Pope is you convince three characters to join your congregation, which you do by uh, kind of moving them in a tug-of-war style across a uh, TV tray or other board. And each character has its own special power when you petition it. Um, Like, for example, there's one card where if you petition it, you have to push it one space towards your opponent. But then every character in the same row as it ha- moves one space towards you. And so there's a lot of positioning and trying to get the characters exactly where you need to be to maximize their abilities. And it's kind of a quick 15-minute uh, uh, tactical game that two players can enjoy. Well, now you said this is a standalone expansion. So what's, is it just new characters or, or is the gameplay changed much at all? So the, if you have just Pilgrimage, um, it's six new characters. Um, they're a little more complicated than the characters from the base game, but if you just have those six characters, it plays out just like the base game does. 
Uh, if you have them both and put them together, there are different ways to set the game up. Each of the six characters in each set is in a faction. And there are six factions, so each set has one character for each faction. And you can mix and match uh, characters between games, or, and this is kind of my favorite way to do it, you just give everybody one copy of each card, because there's two of each character in the game. And then you each pick six characters that you want to put in, one from each faction. And then without looking at them, you shuffle the deck together and make the deck. And so you know what's in half the deck, but you don't know what's in the other half of the deck. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of a hidden information mechanism going on, and it adds a little bit of strategy to what used to be a purely tactical game. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, so a question to the larger group here. Designing a micro game, I mean, besides the obvious limitations of, you know, you have 18 cards you're working with, what are the other challenges or benefits of working in that space? I know for me, having that constraint, uh, it kind of lets you know what your game is going to look like, even if you haven't started uh, on it yet. So you know that, that 18 cards is kind of this hard ceiling that you can't push against. And so instead of something that you fight to make smaller, you're trying to make best with the space you have. And so a lot of the games that I've seen that Buttonshy has are double-sided cards or uh, special ways to keep track of things. And it's just an interesting way to look at things and try and translate them into a smaller package. Um, I actually started working on Avignon in in the wallet format to begin with because uh, the time I was starting to work on a new game, my wife was eight months pregnant. And she was on bed rest a lot because she has a physical disability. And I realized that there were not a lot of games in our collection that fit on a TV tray, which was really the only play surface we had available. And so when I started to design Avignon, part of the design goal was to have a game that would fit on a TV tray or a hospital tray so that if we wanted to when she was in the hospital or when she was on bed rest, we could still game. And so that was an interesting design space to design in. Uh, with that constraint. And then uh, as the game developed, it just happened to also fit in the wallet format. Yeah, I would echo Rob and say that I like I like the restriction that it imposes. Uh, I think it's a fun challenge um, to, to design something that is still, you know, medium, medium-sized meaty that plays in, in 18 cards. Um, there's still some decisions to be made. Uh, this, is, this is really fun for me. Well, speaking of challenges, let me let me throw the opposite direction to you. If for whatever reason you had to add a new component to your games, you know, that wouldn't fit in a wallet, but let's say, you know, you decided you got a great deal with Target and it was going on the shelves tomorrow, but it had to fit in a box. So you got to add a component. What, what would you do? I have an answer for that already, and it's going to be miniatures. So a lot, <laughs> of, a lot of people were asking for the specific scale of the cars in the game. And they wanted to substitute the car, the cards that were given for uh, Matchbox or a specific scale of cars. And so to fit it into a box, I would change all the car, cards to tiles and then just glue cars to each of, each of the starting tiles. And so I think Turbo Drift would be a pretty good fit 
for translating over into a box. Okay, well, if Target's listening, there you go. <laughs> I'm actually going to cheat a little bit and, and give you a little bit of a scoop, uh, which is that I am working on a board game variant for Avignon that we could not put as part of the Kickstarter because of the physical components. Huh. Um, but what it takes is it takes a 5x5 five five board and meeples. Oh, wow. And similar to the setup I was discussing earlier where people picked characters and put them into a deck, in this case you would instead pick your six characters for the factions. And those would be your characters. But instead of the characters being on the board, there are meeples on the board. And so where the orange meeple might be a peasant for you, it would be an ascetic for your opponent because that's the card they chose. And so it would add that kind of consideration of how this piece does a different thing for you than it does for your opponent. Whoa, that's super cool. And so I'd have to add meeples on board. Yeah. And, and that's something that we're trying to figure out if we can do it as part of the Board Game of the Month Club or if it's going to be a Board Game Geek variant. But uh, it is written and designed and tested, and we just need to figure out how we're going to implement it. Wow. That's breaking news right here. Awesome. <laughs> breaking news. I'm giving, giving you a scoop. I love it. Mitchell, what about you? I think if I were to have some box components, the, uh, the first thing would be utility in the form of tokens. So each of the cards are kind of a character archetype. So, like, for instance, there's a hipster, and the hipster's ability is whatever the most prevalent conversation topic is at the table already when they are played, they also gain that. Um, and right now there's no way to, to mark that, to denote that on the card. So my first uh, pick would be tokens for people to easily track what powers have been used on who, whom, who, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, the second thing would be a play mat that looks like uh, a table setting. Um, it would be double-sided. So for three and four players, the sections of the table, so like every player's left, right, and middle would already be denoted and kind of remove that ambiguity. Mm -hmm. um, and on that, there would also be score trackers. So that would, that would probably be my, hmm. my components that I would add in a box. Okay. Hmm. Well, let's talk about how you got connected with Buttonshy and Jason in the first place. How did that play out for each of you? So I got in contact with Jason. Um, he is a huge Star Wars fan, and I am a very big Star Wars fan. And Jason used to host a podcast called Star WTF, where um, he would find a random or chosen article on Wikipedia and would dive in with his co-host, Marty Cobb, um, to talk about everything Star Wars. And uh, that was my first kind of interaction with him. But it soon grew to more when he uh, opened up Button Shy to this 18-card game wallet contest that both uh, Mitchell and I entered into. Um, John also had a, had a design too, right? You had that sock game? Yep. Yeah. I had the sock game. So we, all, we all entered into this contest, and uh, Mitchell and I uh, got runner-up. And so we were lucky enough to uh, be paired with John and his uh, Avignon campaign because it is one of the highest-funding uh, button-shy projects. So he was, he was able to lift two unknowns into into the stratosphere with uh, pairing it up with Avignon. We are, we are on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I, I first got hooked up with Jason uh, when he did his Storyteller Cards project. He was looking for people to contribute designs to that, and I contributed a couple of storytelling games that I was going to use the cards for for my job. And uh, after that, once he had started doing the button or the wallet games, I just cold pitched Avignon by email, said, hey, I've got this two-player game. It'll fit in a wallet. You want to take a look? And he decided hmm. he wanted to take a look and liked it. So he hmm. picked it up. So out of curiosity, John, you mentioned how you were designing this with that space in mind, the smaller space. Did at the time, did, were you thinking about Button Shy or did that come after the fact? Button Shy came after the fact. I'd already taken it to Unpub and a Protospiel before I approached Jason with it. And so it was already pretty far along in the design process. And I forget whether I had just backed a wallet game or whether he had just advertised a wallet game, but I saw something related to the wallet games and thought that Avignon would be a good fit. Well, so, you know, we've been talking a little bit about Kickstarter, and let's talk about your guys' Kickstarter campaign. So, thus far, how's Kickstarter been treating you? I think it's pretty great. I don't, I can't speak for anyone else. This is my first uh, Kickstarter campaign on the other side, but it has been my favorite TV show um, of this past season. <laughs> I've just been uh, watching it, and I can't stop watching it. Um, so, I mean, it's a real nail-biter. Every day is just leaves you on a cliffhanger. But, I mean, we, we have a, a bunch of Kickstarter stretch goals that are just being knocked down uh, left and right. And just some, just some like, really passionate people that I've seen pop up um, when reviews are posted and stuff comes in, uh, new stuff is shown for the campaign. It's just really cool to see people's responses for it. Yeah, I agree. My uh, my IT department's probably seen a sudden spike in Kickstarter traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Just for me, refreshing that page over and over again. Mitchell, is this your first campaign as well? Yes, yes it is, yeah. I am. Jason is a far braver man than I to do so many Kickstarter campaigns. I'm glad to, to have that experience because I feel like, given my proclivity uh, to not be able to sell stuff, <laughs> to not, it's not presented in a way that I feel is adequate, um, I like to have that experience. <laughs> I feel like my own campaign would not go as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this has been a, a weird one for me because this is my second campaign. My first one being the base game and the Avignon uh -huh. base game when it was on Kickstarter last year, just took off like a shot. And we kind of sat there and we're like, uh, okay. <laughs> like when, <laughs> Jason set the first stretch goals for it. I thought that we wouldn't make it halfway to the first stretch goal, to, to the stretch, all the stretch goals. And we ended up hitting them all. And it was awesome. And this campaign, like I look at this campaign and it's doing well, we're knocking down stretch goals and that's great. But I keep thinking, when are we going to get the kick that the last campaign had having to remind myself that like things don't always take off like that. Mm-hmm. A local designer to me, Matt Riddle, um, who designed Fleet and a whole bunch of other stuff, always says about Kickstarter that nobody knows nothing about nothing on Kickstarter. And it's interesting to have to remember that when you're part of a campaign that is doing well, but you keep thinking it could be doing better somehow. 
Right. John, just out, out of curiosity, uh, any idea what what it was about the first campaign that, that caught on so, so strongly? I, I have absolutely no idea. I still have absolutely <laughs> I mean, it, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, it's a two-player game. I had a number of publishers say, I won't even look at this game. Two-player games won't sell. You know, it was a designer with no published games before, so I had no designer rep to build off of. There was, as far as I could tell, very little buzz going into it. Maybe I was wrong. I don't know. But it managed to make its way around, and either people decided there wasn't a whole lot of risk in a $10 game or something. I don't know. It it hmm. that was one of those questions we've been asking. We're like, so the first campaign caught fire. How do we get other campaigns to catch fire like that? And they're just some things catch people's eyes, and some people some things don't. And right. you just got to try to build that network so you can get as many eyes on it as you can. I guess. Right. One thing that I really like about this campaign um, compared to the, some of the other ones that uh, Jason has run. I know last year he ran a campaign every single month for the entire year of 2016, which is absolutely wow. crazy. And so insane. I really... Man does not like sleep. <laughs> yeah, he is he is nuts. And he has a full-time job on top of that. Um, but <laughs> he's now doing quarterly campaigns. And so that's why there's these, these three ca- uh, games in one campaign. Um, but what's really nice about having three games in one campaign is that it lowers international... Um, shipping rates yeah. because it's it's about the same level to ship three games as it is to ship one and so people who would miss out on on certain campaigns just because they couldn't afford to get just one game and have it shipped overseas these campaigns are a lot cheaper shipping compared to previous campaigns and so i think that's that's going to be super cool because I know that there's there was a review that went up of some people who played Turbo Drift in Australia, and I I figured oh, wow. if if shipping costs go down, some people in Australia might might drop on by. So that that was one thing that we ran into with the original Avignon campaign was right when that campaign started, or right before that campaign started, uh, postal rates went up for small packages, and they like when I say mm. up, I mean like doubled. And wow. so we had all these backers that wanted the game and were used to buying 18 card games that would ship internationally for like two, three dollars because they'd get it into the letter size envelope and it wouldn't be too thick and the post rates were lower. And now there's this guy asking for 10 bucks for shipping for an eight dollar game. Right. And, and everyone's <laughs> right. like, well, what's the deal? So we did two things that we're still doing that I thought are, are really helpful. The first is um, that there's a print and play tier. You can get the game print and play for $3 and no shipping because the shipping costs for tiny pieces of data are very low. Mm-hmm. And the other is, and this is one of the reasons he's changed to the quarterly campaign, is that the cost of shipping three wallets to Australia is not very much higher than the cost of shipping one wallet to Australia because it's still very light and it still fits into that small package, but it's still considered a small package for postal rates. And so instead of 10 bucks 
shipping for one game, now it's 11 bucks shipping for three games, which to people in Australia is more familiar to them. Right. Well, so what's next for all of you? What do you got coming down the pipe? It's a good question. I have a game... Uh, Buttonshy actually ran another contest for nano games, games that... Um, if you thought 18 cards was a bloated mess, then nine cards <laughs> is the uh, contest for you. And so I actually entered a game into that contest, and uh, I won in my category, and it's called Skyscrapers. Wow. And so I'm looking to develop that soon and see if that can fit into Button Shy's uh, future lineups for their Board Game of the Month club. So it's all about wow. uh, stacking cards and working together with other people to stack maybe even just one card on top of a tower. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I was one of the cool. judges for the first round of the contest, and that was one of the pitches that really stood out to me was that one. Oh, we, we referred to it in the contest channel as, as a rhino, free rhino hero. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it, Rhino Hero definitely had, had a big, big part in the development process. <laughs> Originally, it, ha it had uh, coins in the design where you would, you would put coins on each of the cards and, and uh, it, got, it got really complicated really fast. And so coins were out, no rhinos, mm. just people pointing at cards and stacking them on top of each other. Um, I'm working on a couple of games that I am taking to the Unpub Game Festival in Baltimore this March. Um, one of them is Striking Flint, which is a cooperative game about the uh, auto strikes in Flint, Michigan in the 1930s, and where you're the union trying to uh, fight the man and basically sit down in factory positions and stop the factory from making cars. And the other is a game called Mithril Chef, which is a frantic ambidexterity game. We call it that because you have to use both hands at the same time. That is sort of a, fantasy, a generic fantasy-themed cooking competition uh, where you have to go hunt game, <laughs> raid the pantry, put meals together, and then plate it all in real time. And uh, so those are the two I'm kind of focusing on for the time being. And... Uh, We'll see where things go after that, I guess. Sounds fun. Mitchell, what about you? Um, kind of like Rob mentioned earlier, uh, I'm a I'm a big contest junkie as well. Uh, so right now I've got my eyes on a couple of contests. I know GameCrafter's running a, a Trick Taker yeah. challenge and a Big Box challenge. Uh, so I'm probably going to try to work something up for both of those. Um, mm. Jellybean Games had a um, Lady and the Tiger challenge, which is a game that they already had developed, and then the challenge was to use the same components that they already have and create another game based off of it. Interesting. Um, I don't think I'm going to have time to do that, but that was something that I was really looking forward to. I'm in the process of moving, so a lot of my design time has been sapped by planning for that. <laughs> by life, yeah. yeah. Well, just a question for all of you. What advice do you have for a new game designer? Someone looking to get into your shoes, maybe win a contest, for example. What would you tell them? So for me, the the, the biggest piece of advice that I wish I could have given myself right. when I was first starting. So the first first game I did, and when I still was uh, young, I guess, <laughs> um, I was playing a bunch of Magic at the time, which I'm sure a lot of people do. It's, a lot of people start out that way. And one of my buddies was hardcore addicted. He still is hardcore addicted to World of Warcraft. Um, he's in a raiding guild, and so you know he he'd set aside weekends to, to go do that 
you know, I'd go over to his house and I'd see him play, and he always tanked everything. So I got this idea of making a game about stealing aggro from a monster in the middle of the table using your little party of guys. <laughs> so I went and I made it and got it printed, brought it so my friends could try it. Immediately, like the first time it was played, somebody found a way to just completely break it, just horribly, horribly break it. Um, <laughs> and I was like so defeated that I just stopped for like a year and a half. Ooh. The piece of advice I would give is uh, if that happens, don't stop. Hmm. Um, because you, you eventually you hurt yourself in the long run. All right. Fa- fail early, fail often, I guess is the, uh, the anecdote. The, the rule right. I hear from other designers is kind of the 10 10 10 rule which is that out of all the ideas you have 10 percent are worth making into a prototype out of those prototypes 10 mm-hmm. percent are worth showing to a publisher and out of the ones you show to a <laughs> publisher 10 percent will get signed and and so wow. it's it's a process and an industry that is has a very high rate of poor outcomes I wouldn't say failure, I would say yeah. undesired outcomes. In that you're always trying to get the game signed and you usually learn something while you're playing while you're making the game, but you don't you usually what you end up with is a box full of prototypes with ideas that you can use somewhere else probably. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and it would be I, I would have a, a similar recommendation, which is just when you have a game that doesn't work, don't take the whole thing and throw it away. Put it aside recognize what parts of the game work and try to figure out what parts of the game don't. And the parts of the game that do work can possibly show up somewhere else on a different game. Uh, The advice I would like to give and would like to follow a little bit more is don't be afraid to make a prototype. You can polish games as much as you want in your head, but until it's actually physically on the table or um, in a form that people can play test then it's not going to work at all. And so just mm-hmm. kind of cut down that time between when you have an idea and when you can see if if it actually works on the table. Yep. And so I want to be able to cut down my time from writing an idea in my notebook to actually writing down cards or or uh, fiddling with pieces and that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you, do, if you do not have something that can be played, you do not have a game. Right. <laughs> right. Well, very good advice, all of you. I appreciate that. Well, now it's time for uh, me to spring my trap and let you know the true purpose of this podcast, Mm -hmm. which is not to talk about Kickstarter or games or blah, 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 but instead to play the game design challenge. Yeah. So, and because we have three different game designers, we're actually going to pit you head to head against each other. Oh, gosh. Here's how this is going to work. I'm going to present a theme to you that I've selected at random. Then each of you can think about it, chew it over a little bit in your head, and then each of you in turn pitch back to me what that game might be. You up for that? Yes. Sure. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Let's do this. So I'm going to find a theme. Let me get my randomizer going here. And that theme is going to be Goodbye Planet Earth. Hmm. Okay, so Goodbye Planet Earth. So the person that you are going to be playing as is someone who has a knowledge of the great beyond. I guess not not death, just what lies beyond Earth-bound realm. Um, So they're leaving behind planet Earth 
and they need preparations. I'm thinking more of kind of like a Kerbal Space Program for board games where you're kind of cobbling together pieces. So you are you are a person who knows they want to leave planet Earth uh, for stars and moons and all that kind of stuff, but they're not entirely sure how to do it. And so you are scrambling for pieces, kind of Galaxy Trucker-esque, I would say, but you're kind of shooting for these checkpoints or goals. Um, you want to be able to fly past the moon. You want to be able to reach Mars at some point. But you have to create, you have to reach missions on Earth in order in order to do that. So you need a certain amount of fuel. You need a certain, I guess, intelligence rating of people who do know how to fly spacecrafts. I don't have, man, I we uh, at Button Shy we have we have an entire channel dedicated to just pitching games to each other. And I would have thought that oh, this really? I would have been a little bit better at it. But, Wait, we do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pitch, it's yeah, pitch tag, John. You got to get on that pitch tag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in pitch tag either. Okay, then yeah, you guys you guys got to get into it because we we have a yeah we basically have a three three line um, title that we give to each other, and that is that is the game that you base it off of. So, man, goodbye, Planet Earth. I'm gonna probably bring it into the channel and see what other people have have to bring. Okay, <laughs> so that's mine. A Kerbal Space Program, but board game. All right, I got this. This, this, is, this is my Battlestar Galactica Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mashup. Nice. <laughs> okay. In Goodbye like Planet Earth, you are a group of aliens, and you are trying to build an interstellar space highway. But the planet Earth is in the way. It is a violation of intergalactic right. law for you to destroy a planet. But if you are clever and you are good at espionage... <laughs> You can convince the inhabitants of that planet to destroy it for you. <laughs> so it is a combination of a worker placement uh, plus hidden role game where you're trying to destroy the Earth in a certain way and you are trying to manipulate the residents of Earth, you know, say through politics, uh, climate, you know, corporate influence, military applications, whatever you have at your disposal to get those pesky Earthlings to destroy the planet and say <laughs> goodbye planet Earth so you can build your space highway. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's right That there. sounds amazing. Very good. All right. So mine's going to be a little more somber, I guess. Um, hmm. To me, goodbye planet Earth is kind of how this is, uh, this is probably too environmentalist, but... Um, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was what we at humanity is, are doing to the earth right now. So okay. in my mind, it would be a game played in three kind of different phases. Uh, the first game would be essentially Carcassonne, but you'd be laying down tiles uh, that would define the earth that you have, but you would stack them. You'd be able to stack them. So you could create mountains, create lakes, uh, and like a stacked ocean would be a deeper ocean. And then depending on that, that would define resource positions. The second phase would be kind of like city building, and you would build a major city, kind of, I'm thinking like civilization, just because I spent a few hours playing that over Christmas. Um, <laughs> um, but you kind of build a little tiny empire. And then the last phase would be worker placement, in that you would, every tile that is stacked has one use of that resource, and you would eventually use it to build buildings and improve your empire, but in the process, you would be destroying the earth around you. And the game would end when basically all the Earth's natural resources are used up. 
and whoever had like the most dynastic glory uh, would, would be the winner. <laughs> that sounds great. All right. Yeah, there you go. Three distinct fantastic games, which I'm <laughs> expecting to be button shy 2017 quarter two, right? That's, yeah. that's the plan here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Let me just move again and then I'll uh, get right on that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Exactly. Well, Rob, Mitchell, and John, it's been a real pleasure speaking with all of you this evening. It's been happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, thanks. You too. Great. And best of luck with the rest of the campaign. Thank, Thank you. you. Check it out. Thank you very much. Well, that was Rob Kramer, John Dubois, and Mitchell Shipman, the three game designers currently on Kickstarter through Button Shy Games with their wallet games. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. You can learn more about these three fabulous games on our website, www.yourtablesonfire.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at TableFire. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and of course, BoardGameGeek. Hit us up on any of those sites and give us a review. We want to hear what you think. Well, until next time, go light it up. Bye.